Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. What a week it's been for those of us in fraud and trust and safety and just tech overall. I know for me, my head is spinning, I'm exhausted, and I'm not on the front lines. I'm just air support in quotation marks. So I know that everybody's a little bit, whew. I wanted to change things up this week for this purpose. I've had more than a few of you ask, when are you going to talk about Twitter? When are you going to talk about this and that and the other thing? And while we had a really good interview scheduled for this week, I'm most definitely planning on running it next Tuesday unless something else major happened like this week. But instead, I'm doing my solo episode on Tuesday and we're going to have an interview episode on Thursday with Stephen Sargent. If you have been listening for a little while, you know that Stephen is an expert on crypto compliance and crypto investigations and crypto crimes. And for some reason oh, I don't know, FTX. And now there's some interesting rumors going on about crypto.com. Rumors only right now. I thought it would be important to have him on. So that is the schedule for this week. Ironically, it's actually for International Fraud Awareness Week. I don't know about you guys, but I am very aware of fraud right now. I think it's actually supposed to be for the world to be aware of fraud. And technically, this is a week that has been co-opted by the ACFE, so the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, created this week, I don't know, about a decade ago. I don't even know. It's been a long time. It's always kind of the, the week right before Thanksgiving. But even though they focus primarily on internal fraud and embezzlement cases and forensic accounting, those of us in all area of fraud have just kind of co-opted it. So I had plans for today's episode and Thursday's episode did be a little bit more along those lines. But there's a pretty well-known saying, at least in the U.S., that says, oh, when you make plans, God laughs. And apparently, that happened. So obviously, I'm going to talk about Twitter. That's got to happen. But there's also a lot of things about fraud news that some of the things I've put on my LinkedIn, some I haven't. My phone has been going off more in the last four or five days with big merchants saying, hey, has anyone else told you about this? Or is anyone else experiencing this? Or uh, have you ever seen this before? So I've kind of tried to compile them into a couple of things for you to know, those of you that are on the ground fighting the good fight. I'd rather you know about these sooner than later, and at the very least, so you know that you're not the only one seeing it. At the most, you can keep an eye out if you're not seeing it yet, and hopefully stop it ahead of time. So I legitimately don't think I have ever seen so much happen within our industry in one week. And it's been kind of like dominoes. Obviously, the Twitter stuff started about a week and a half, two weeks ago, but it just keeps going. And actually, my husband said it the other night because we watched Super Pumped several months ago. In fact, I did an episode about it because there was a little part about fraud in one of the episodes of the docuseries and docudrama. Is that what they called it? Because it was scripted. So it wasn't like a documentary, but it was you know all about Travis Kalanick and his reign as CEO at Uber. And the episode I did kind of explained a little bit more about the fraud that they talked about and that they showed because it wasn't at all what it was. What I mean by that is what really happened in real life 
with the fraud in China that was discussed on that show and actually did happen and actually did impact quite a bit was not how it was portrayed on the TV show. So I talked about that a while ago. But anyway, I bring that up because my husband said it's going to be really interesting to watch the docudrama about Elon Musk and his reign at Twitter. I was like, I don't know. I've lived it. I'm not, and I'm not even a Twitter employee. So I don't know if anyone wants to see that yet. It's a little too soon. But again, I'm not a Twitter employee. And I know I have talked to and heard from a few of you guys, former and current. So I'm going to do my best to represent you and your experiences. And my hope is that at least one of you can come on the podcast soon. We're working on it. So beyond talking about the Twitter implosion and what can be learned, you know, from fraud and trust and safety perspective and the impacts that were made, I mean, we really were, the, I mean, trust and safety really was the foundation of that organization. And when you take that away, this is what happens. I'm going to talk very briefly about FTX because again, Stephen's going to come on and talk a lot more about it. And that's where we'll talk a lot more about that. So I'm going to briefly touch on so many layoffs, you know, why they're happening, especially why fraud and trust and safety people are being laid off. I've talked to a couple of the leaders of those organizations at those companies in the last week and touched base with them just to see how they're doing. And I've had some good phone calls. So I can share a little bit about that. And then, you know, there are some pretty serious fraud threats hitting merchants now. So I'm going to talk about those things first and Twitter next after that. So, you know, FTX, if you're not familiar, is a crypto wallet storage company. Again, I'm not the crypto expert here, but my understanding is that they were under an audit and a review to be purchased by another crypto company called Binance. And rumors started coming out on Twitter that there were two companies basically guaranteeing each other. So FTX and then this other company, I want to say it's Alameda. I didn't look. It, it starts with an A, the parent company. And they were basically guaranteeing each other. So there wasn't enough liquid funds in backing that crypto exchange if everybody cashed out instantly. So I've heard it compared to giving real money for Chuck E. Cheese tokens and not or tickets and not being able to cash in those tickets when it's time for something of equal value. So Everything kind of fell apart. Everybody pulled their money out as soon as they could. And then all kinds of shenanigans happened where there was a hack and there was everyone over the weekend was saying, don't go to the website, don't click on any links because it's full of malware and Trojan, you know, viruses and all kinds of stuff. And now as the saga goes, there is some speculation that the hack of the remaining money came from inside the house, as they would say. And there's speculation that that might have been the CEO. A lot of speculation right now, but that's where we are. Definitely go look it up. I think I plugged these guys on Thursday, but if you're not listening to the Pivot podcast, in addition to Fraudology, I highly recommend it. It's Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. They have very interesting perspectives and they have a good, good chemistry as well. I have some empathy for Kara Swisher. I'm sure if anyone listens to the podcast and knows my history, they can put two and three together. But I think that with all that said, I Pivot did a really good job of explaining it on their Friday episode up until that point. So go there. But that is something that definitely I think a lot of people in our industry are paying attention to. Moving down to the layoffs, Chime and Meta. I mean, Meta laid off about 11,000 people. Meta was previously known as Facebook. There are some differences in opinions from people on the outside and the inside. But I know that, you know, with leadership, sometimes when there's really one person at the top, and in this case, it's Mark Zuckerberg, he feels very strongly about continuing to build the metaverse. And however, it is taking up a lot of the money from areas of business like Facebook and Instagram. So they had to make those layoffs. And I know it's been really tough 
for the fraud and trust and safety team there and the leaders that are still there. The leaders that are still at all of these companies are really having a hard time. In some cases, they had a little bit of say, but in others, they didn't find out who was leaving on their team until they were CC'd on the email to their team member. And that's really tough. A couple of them have already reached out to me and said, hey, this person is really amazing. If you find, if you know of anything in this area or this, you know, geographic area or this area about expertise, please consider referring them. You know, I think that there are some great humans that lead people. Not always the case, but in these cases, I think it's true. So I don't know if I listed all of them, but there was, you know, Chime and Stripe and Twitter and Facebook. And I know I'm forgetting a couple. I'm sorry, guys. I didn't write them down. But I know that in addition to it being hard for the, I mean, significantly hard for the people who are being laid off, it's also hard for the people who remain. Some have survivor's guilt. Some, you know, are worried that they're next. Some are taking on way more work than they ever have before. Some, there's not a lot of communication or continuity plan. So they're really not sure what's going on. So it's a lot. And then there's everyone else who might still be employed at other companies and, still worry about what this means for them and what this means for our industry. I posted on LinkedIn the other day about it, and I don't ever mean to sound like a Susie Sunshine, but I have to sometimes because I, I've been diagnosed with depression and anxiety, and sometimes I find that I really need to kind of switch my mindset. And I found myself realizing that the last time we had a recession, the last time there were a lot of layoffs in all kinds of industries, we also saw a lot of innovation. A lot of the companies that you're working for now didn't exist in the last recession that we had. There weren't the business models that we had, the sharing economy, the gig economy, marketplaces in general. I mean, there were a couple. There certainly weren't as many now. There's like a marketplace for everything now, neobanks and everything else. So there's part of me that says, you know, this is really this time is hard and it sucks for a lot of people. And it's hard on all of us as far as our, you know, just keeping our our optimism. But at the same time, I think that if you look back on the last time you had these feelings of uncertainty and doubt and fear, you might think, huh, everything worked out from then. So those are things that have worked for me. I'm not saying that everything's perfect. I'm not saying it's rainbows or anything else. But I think the mixture of me, you know, battling depression most of my life, as well as being in fraud, where sometimes we can be considered cynics, a good friend of mine says, I'm not a cynic, I'm just skeptical. I don't know if there's such a difference, but sometimes you kind of have to force yourself to look at the sunny side of life or look at what you're grateful for, even if it feels on the surface that everything is turned to shit. Like sometimes, you know, it just helps that way. So anyway, I'm moving on from that, but I didn't want to not mention those. And it is hard for people in front of trust and safety to understand why these roles are being included in the layoffs and I think Robert Capps did the best job explaining that several, um, a couple months ago when we first saw the first round of layoffs this year in tech, where, you know, unfortunately, a lot of companies are still comparing fraud and trust and safety to things like customer service, where if you say, okay, well, our sales are down X percent, so our needs in these areas are going to be down X percent. That's not the case for fraud and trust and safety and everything in between, as well as compliance and AML, et cetera. Fraudsters have their own journey. They're not really able to be charted or predicted. And oftentimes when there's a door or a window left open, they're going to double down. So it's hard to see these companies as these areas. I know it's frustrating and everything else. Unfortunately, at least yet, fraud and trust and safety people don't rule the world. I don't know. 
I'm kind of hopeful after this last week that at least a lot of people are going to realize, huh, I think those departments are really, really important. We'll see. <laughs> governance as well. Governance, policy, trust and safety and fraud. I think those are the through lines between Twitter and FTX and some of the other things going on that those were the backbones of the company. That was what was holding things together or what would have prevented them from failing in both situations. It's a little bit different. There was also a data breach file reported to the state of Massachusetts by TransUnion last week. As of the time I'm recording this, there are no numbers of how many records were compromised. I know that letters are going out to the impacted consumers. The things that were listed as far as the data points that were compromised include name, address, email, phone, as well as date of birth and driver's license number. So that's probably going to mean, depending on the number, it's going to mean more identity theft, more synthetic fraud for credit companies, for banks, for neobanks and fintechs, you know, consumer-focused fintechs with lending, and also probably some attempts at account takeover with driver's license numbers and other information, and possibly some multi-factor authentication spoofing. So, you know, I just feel like I'm just putting the cherry on top of this Sunday, and not a good one, not one that you're going to want to eat that much. So the two biggest fraud threats that I have been talking with e-commerce merchants about, and while yes, the majority of my network is in e-commerce and it's enterprise, it's usually well-known brands. I know that a lot of you who don't work in that vertical still appreciate hearing these because sometimes you'll see parts of this or you'll see pieces of it. So one is continuation, I believe, just with everything sounds very similar to the ATOs that I talked about a few weeks ago. At the time, I had thought for sure, for so many reasons that I even listed, that it may have been due to a data breach of credentials at another e-commerce company. That announcement hasn't come, so it could be something else. There are a few hypotheses with some experts that I've been talking to about this, but nothing's for certain. So not going to go down that path. And again, like I said at the time then too, when you're in fraud and trust and safety, but you know, this is really on the payment fraud side. When you're in fraud, it doesn't always really matter where the data came from as much as it is that it's coming and then it's going to impact you. And then it's, they're going to try to monetize off of your website and off of your company. That's really what's most important. So obviously in cybersecurity, that's a different story. But for us, it's more important that we know what's happening. So about two to three merchants a week or well, every few days or so are experiencing just this hard and fast coordinated foreign fraud attack. And what that looks like is just relentless. I mean, there's one merchant I was talking to the other day about this. And they've been in fraud prevention for over 25 years in e-commerce for different retailers, all big name retailers. And they said they have never seen anything like this with this amount, amount of force and this much tenacity. And to the point where their fraud provider that they work with also said, like, we're having a really hard time identifying these. These guys are good. And I think it's because they've been learning as they're going. I mean, I think that they already were skilled, but it's really coordinated. It's possible that this is a large crime organization or one of those fraud farms that kind of all works like a company and all the different skills are internal because it's just very coordinated. Some of the factors, some of the MO that make us think that it's connected and just in general, they're hitting hard and fast on specific merchants, often big names. They're often targeting anything that's easily resellable, whether it's gift cards to large brand name companies, but that's not as much as hard goods, sneakers, luxury brands, electronics, thing with a brand on it. That's what they're going for. 
And often they are sending it to reshipping addresses, which you would think, okay, well, that's easy. And oftentimes they're very similar to reshipping addresses in the same areas of the U.S., primarily Miami, Texas, and Portland, though there's been some outliers. And the addresses are similar, but they are making slight address manipulations. So it's becoming harder and harder for fraud systems to identify it because they might put something extra in the address line too, or they might put, might spell a street name a little bit differently each time, things like that. And so unfortunately, some fraud systems are going to record that as different addresses. And I think that these guys know it. I wouldn't be saying it on this podcast if I didn't know that these guys knew that. And then it seemed like once they start to see a lot more of their orders being canceled, then they go away. Currently, they're not ATOs. They're zero-day attacks, which often in our world, we'll call that new account fraud. They're opening a new account and trying and trying again. Often we'll refresh their IP and their device. Sometimes they'll forget to refresh one, but not the other, but that's varies. So be on the lookout for that, especially if you're in retail, especially because it's the holiday season and you're needing to push out more orders than ever. And these are proving to be pretty challenging to find. So I'm just, that's why I wanted to let you guys know. And then lastly, another fraud trend that I've been hearing too much about lately is compromised customer service agents. I've been talking about fraud as a service for the last, I don't know, two or three years, I think since right around COVID. And I've been saying how much it scares me for so many reasons. And unfortunately, as we get better and better at detecting online fraud, you know, the fraudsters, the bad actors will go for another path of least resistance. They'll go to your call center and they'll ask to make a purchase or reroute a package or something like that. And if you've trained your customer service well to have policies around that or to escalate that to your fraud department or no, we can't reroute it to another residential address. We can only reroute it to a shipping hub where they have to check IDs and you know, where they insure it. So if they give it to the wrong person, it's on them. Well, when they meet that resistance, then they will start recruiting customer service agents. And I remember saying this, I don't think it was the first time, but I remember saying this on stage at Cardinet Present 2019 when Brett Johnson and I were the keynotes. We did a live podcast episode when we were co-hosting online broadcast. And I remember saying it then, and I'm sure I've said it since then too, but you know, your customer service agents are the lowest paid employees in your company and they have the keys to the kingdom as far as fraudsters are concerned. So it's really, really important to work with your customer service team to have two lines of communication back and forth to help train them, not on everything you do, because, you know, sometimes their whole job is to please customers. So you don't want to tell them everything you do, because sometimes they might, you know, tell them, but really, you know, explaining why it's important. And it's also important to do a lot of tracking and reporting. And if you have a third party customer service center or third party company that provides your customer service, hold them accountable on that tracking and reporting. Ask for it regularly or do it yourself. These are all things that came up on my retailer call last week. And it's something that too many companies are seeing right now. And the mix of the economy, along with in entry level customer service agents who may not think it's wrong or may think, well, I need to put more gas in my tank or I need to feed my family, they might take that extra 50 bucks or in some cases, 200 or more. And so there are more online fraud teams doing internal investigations like LP or ORC units than there ever have been before. There was one person on that call who has a lot of experience doing that, that shared a lot of best practices that, you know, if I get a minute to talk about that alone on an episode, I can dive into. And please let me know if that's something you want to hear more about very soon, because I'm trying to be as agile as possible, as you can see. 
Okay, I got everything else out of the way. Here comes my Twitter rants. On one hand, I was like, I don't know if anyone needs to hear about it from me. Like, I think that everyone else is talking about it. But not only was it, did it only lose out to holiday shopping fraud on last week's topic by like 4% in my poll of 75 people on LinkedIn that day. If you listen to that episode, you understand what I'm talking about. But I've been asked about it a lot lately. So I'm going to give a little bit of what you already know mixed with a little bit of things that I have learned that can be shared and then mixed with some opinions and observations, especially about payments and fraud, because we are the stars of the show as well as the trust and safety team. I joked on LinkedIn the other day that if any leader ever dares to, to ask, well, what's the importance of a trust and safety team or a fraud and identity team, you only have to say one word back, and that's Twitter. Look at what happened to Twitter in like a week and a half. That's why it's important. So as everybody knows by now, and I even talked about this in April when Elon Musk, you know, first talked about wanting to purchase Twitter, but then he kind of went back and forth and there was this whole thing about him. I, this is when I talked about it too, like when he was talking about, well, there's too many bots and you know, there was a study, but I don't think it's right. And there's way more bots than they're claiming and all kinds of stuff. So he tried to get out of it. I personally thought it was a little bit of buyer's remorse because it has been challenging for Jack Dorsey and others at Twitter to make it profitable. So there's other reasons for that too. Also, I think it's much easier to be a Monday morning quarterback than it is to be the head coach. So that's why I thought he had backed out. But kind of all of a sudden, the purchase went through, at least it seemed like it to me, on October 27th of this year. So just like less than two weeks ago. He bought it for $44 billion. I think the original price was going to be $56 billion. So I don't know if he got it on a steal or not. I don't think so at this point. So he said his goal with the platform was to promote free speech without bots. And I think a lot of us said, all right, good luck with that. He then fired top executives. He dissolved the board. So he was the only one in charge. Really no checks and balances for him. I know that he reached out to a few people that would have been really good advisors to him about what he should do with the company. But when they said things to him or gave him suggestions that he didn't agree with, he stopped calling them or answering their calls. So he decided that he alone could fix it or break it. I don't know. So really just one man's in charge. One man who's never had an e-commerce company. Now, yes, I do know that he was a co-founder of PayPal. However, that doesn't mean that he knew payments. It doesn't mean that he knew fraud. I think we all remember what PayPal was at the very beginning. He wasn't there for very long from what I understand. I could be wrong, but I would say that I would be very shocked if he knew a lot about payments and fraud from his time at PayPal just based on the last two weeks. Just because someone works somewhere or founds a company does not mean that they're an expert in that field. Sometimes it just means that they wrote the check and they hired really good people and they had good relations with investors. So he dissolved the board. Then he laid off over half of their employees, including, you know, trust and safety on their product side, content moderation, the risk evaluation of new products team, all kinds. And I actually last, I guess not this last one, but the one before Thursday night received a picture of the email that went out to the employees before it was publicized. And I really was disappointed at the lack of empathy and just how it was being done. I mean, essentially, if you got to keep your job, you get an email on your Twitter email. If you got, if you were going to be laid off, you had to check your personal email. And if you know you had to check your spam and all that. And if you didn't get something by 5 p.m. that night, then you had to email a certain email address. It was just nuts. And it seemed to happen so fast that there was no chance for a continuity plan. And there wasn't a lot of strategy that went into who would be asked to leave the company. 
I think that that is really good for all the companies that are going to benefit from this amazing talent. But at the same time, he obviously, I think it's safe to say that there wasn't a continuity plan or any strategy around it because word got out in the press that the day after the layoffs, Elon was asking and begging some of the developers and other people to come back because he realized that only they knew how to work on critical parts of the infrastructure. So it just seems so haphazard. I know that, you know, it was hard for the people that were laid off, especially trust and safety. I know that some of them were trying to fix things as long as they could until their system access went down. But at the same time, I also know that it's been really, really hard for the ones that were left as well. So it's really not easy to anyone. I mean, my husband works for a large Fortune 100 company and was saying this week that he couldn't imagine if this happened to his company and, and just he's been there over 20 years and it's his life. And I know a lot of people were like that at Twitter too, and they put so much of their heart and soul in it, especially on the content moderation side, that if I could give everyone a hug and if it would make any difference, I totally would. He also disabled content moderation in the technology as well as a lot of the policies. It's hard to know if he just completely disabled it or it was just parts of it, but certainly that was obvious. Just It became more of the wild, wild west than it was before. Just a couple of the things that caught my attention as all of this was playing out, one was posts using very derogatory, hateful, hate speech um, and racist words were they went up 500% just in the first 12 hours after he owned the company, after the leadership changed. So clearly some of the content moderation technology was disabled because otherwise any posts with specific words would not be able to be posted. He announced that he would forego any significant content moderation or account reinstatements until after he formed a new committee with very diverse opinions. It wasn't clear at all if that new committee would have any experience in content moderation or policy, anything like that, which is so important. And if you haven't worked in user-generated real-time content platforms, it's a whole other world. It's related to payments and fraud because it's a form of abuse and all that. And so often trust and safety and fraud can kind of be looped together, but it is a special art and science. I have had it on my topic list for interviews for the last several months, actually long before any of this happened, to have some really amazing leaders in the content moderation space be guests. And I'm grateful that at least one, possibly two, will be joining me soon. To talk about it because I do think that it's interesting for people in fraud to learn, you know, about another skill set, but it's also really good for people in content moderation to learn from, you know, experts and, and really just talented, smart people. And I know enough about it to know that it's difficult, to know that you have to really take out your own personal biases. You need to set policies so that nobody is just saying, oh, I don't agree with that. So we need to take it off because inconsistency is what's going to lose trust inconsistency is what's going to create chaos. When it comes to content moderation, you need to have policies that everyone in the company lives and dies by or else it's going to be chaos. And we have seen that in the last couple. So one of the things that came from that was obviously use of racial slurs went up 500% just in the first 12 hours. I'm sure it's gone up thousands of percent now, but that was just one statistic I saw. There's no word on when that content moderation panel is going to be done, who's going to be in it, nothing like that. Just 
oh, we're just, we don't need it for a while, I guess, is kind of what he was thinking. So it's very clear to me that this wasn't thought through. Or if it was, there was some belief that all the people who have dedicated their lives and their careers to this art and this public service, the things they have to see are gnarly and not anything that I could deal with as an empath. So to underestimate their value and the fact that they were unsung heroes and that wasn't noticed is Hard for those of us who even just have like a 10% idea of what goes into that job. Not just for the people who have to make the rules and stick to it and still bend them a little and constantly assess them and constantly have things escalated and all that, but almost even more so for the people on the ground that are having to do the manual reviews of the content moderation. More and more of that is being handled by technology, thankfully, but there's still a pretty big part of it that has to be done by people. And there's a lot of therapy involved and it's very challenging. And it can also be a role with high turnover because they're seeing the worst of the worst. If you think that the stuff that you're seeing on social media is bad, which, you know, there are some things that are bad. Just imagine all the things that people have tried to put on there that haven't made it because there were really good, clear guidelines and policies that prevented them from being posted. But content moderation wasn't the only thing that was impacted. The day after Elon Musk took over, there was someone who's a big influencer. And this is just one story out of many. I happen to know that there was a lot of scams that have happened using that platform in a lot of ways. There were more account takeovers. There was more hacking of accounts, as most people would say. And remember, Elon had said that he, there was going to be no more account reinstatement until he got this mystery group of advisors out there. So in the meantime, if you get your account taken over, can't do anything about it. Ooh, I really want to tell a side story right now of a time when I helped a professional sports player get their Twitter account back after they were had their account taken over, but that's going to have to wait for another day. And I have a signed sports ball to prove it. It's actually not in my possession right now. That's a longer story, but I do have it. It is mine. But anyway, speaking of account takeover, there was one influencer that I heard about actually on like a pop culture podcast I was listening to. And I was like, well, that's fraud related. I'm writing that down. Her name is Lacey Mosley. And she actually has a podcast called The Scam Goddess. I listened to it when it first came out and it just wasn't the same kind of scams that I was hoping to learn about. At the time, it was like, oh, that guy said he was six foot two and he was really five foot ten. So that was on a dating app. So that was a scam scam. It may have changed now because I was really excited about it and like, wow, I want to have her on and, you know, I should be on her podcast and but I should probably listen to it again. I'm sure she'll talk about this in a future episode if she hasn't already. But she had her account taken over the day after the leadership switch at Twitter. And the fraudster who took over her account then posted it as her offering laptops for $1,000 and even generously said that Lacey would sign the laptops for them. They had Lacey's fans pay via Venmo. They opened up Venmo in her name. So the fans thought that they were paying her. This was not a situation of an imposter account like I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. This was her actual account with all the account history on it. So you know, okay, this was her at one point. All of a sudden, she's selling laptops for $1,000. Oh, this must be a new thing. Okay, sure. People trust her. Therefore, they trusted the account and sent money. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology, and one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. 
You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe. Without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score. Or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models. And their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. And she tried for eight days to get her account back. Not only did she try and she had like, I think hundreds of thousands of followers, but she had other people who were really well known and famous and had good connections. And they were all told, sorry, we're being told that we can't reinstate any accounts right now. So for eight days, that bad actor got to pose as her and got to keep scamming her fans. And she really didn't have a way to tell them. She tried to tell them on other outlets, but if they only follow her on Twitter, they're not going to know. So because of that, it finally on the eighth day, like I'm telling the creation story or something like that, but finally on the day, they finally gave her back her account and she was able to verify herself and get her account back. The bad actor lost access. But by that point, some of her fans had lost hundreds or thousands of dollars. They were starting to say, hey, you scammed me. Like, isn't that the irony of it all, right? You call yourself the scam goddess. Maybe this was the play all along. So, and you can tell by the last post that she put on Twitter that she was devastated and heartbroken and just really, really mad. And I don't blame her. And like I said, that's not the only story, but that's a really good one of explaining why remedying account takeovers, why preventing them in the first place is important. But when you can't, because we can't always, and I've talked about that many times, you need to be able to identify them very quickly, especially when they have activity on the account. If it's purchasing something on the website, you need to be able to identify them before that item has been fulfilled. If it's cleaning the account out of all the mileage points or loyalty points or store credit or bank account or crypto or P2P wallet, any of those things, then you need to do it before that action happens. And in Twitter's case, they didn't identify it for eight days. 
and it wasn't anyone in fraud or trust and safety's fault at all. When your tools are disabled, when more than half your team is laid off, when morale is super down and you don't know if you're going to have a job tomorrow, even though, or what your job's going to be tomorrow with all the chaos, you can't be expected to be on your A-game anyway. You can't be expected to do that, especially when there's a, you know, decree from on high from this new CEO saying we're not going to activate any new account. Why they couldn't have suspended it? I don't know. But I'm not blaming anyone that's still there. And I just want to make that super, super, super crystal clear. I personally think that anyone, I mean, I've known a lot of people that you know worked there in the past, worked there up until a week and a half ago, work there now. And I've been there a couple of times myself. And I know that, you know, they're really good people who are doing the very best they can. Same with really all or most of the other social media networks. So I just want to make it super, super clear. I'm not dragging anyone here except for maybe the new CEO, but I think it's justified. Okay, so now let's get into this next part, which I think everyone's heard a little bit about, but give a little bit more info on that one. So on November 9th, I'm kind of walking through this timeline. Elon launched a new version of Twitter Blue. So Twitter Blue was this membership, and I think it gave people the ability to monetize on subscribers, post. I think it was trying to be kind of like Clubhouse, if I remember correctly. I actually don't. I'm not on Twitter. I wasn't ever on Twitter. So I don't know. I can barely keep track of one social media account. It's just my ADD is so bad. Like I wouldn't be able to get my work done and manage three or four social media accounts. So despite being asked to live tweet something once and I was like, sorry, they were going to pay me. And I was like, sorry, can't do it. Like I don't have a Twitter account or followers. So Twitter Blue was an existing subscription for a different amount of money for a different service because he wanted to roll this out so quickly. They didn't start a whole new product. They didn't start a whole new project that could have taken months. I don't think this guy has a lot of patience. So instead, he said, well, why don't you just swap it out? So, you know, we're going to charge $7.99. And instead of having whatever the perks of Twitter Blue were before, now they're going to get a verified check mark. And previously, only public officials or brands would have that check mark. And it would be after an application, a manual identity verification process. It was fairly extensive to prevent impersonators. Go figure. Ever since I heard about this crazy idea, I don't know, a month or two ago, whenever it was announced that this was going to be his great idea to stop bots. I facepalmed and eye rolled, I think, at the same time. And I think all of you guys did because it's based on the assumption that an authorized payment means a verified identity. If that were true, we wouldn't really have a need to have a job, or at least there wouldn't need to be so many of us. If that were true, we wouldn't need all the fraud technology that we have for identity verification and payment. Ver- I mean, all the things, right? I can use your credit card and the bank isn't going to know if it's you or me. And let's be clear, bank doesn't verify all the information for an identity. So, you know, again, there are just some things I don't say on the podcast. So I'm trying to like generalize it. But you can also use prepaids unless they were blocking bins, which they can't do. And I know that they weren't. You can use prepaids. You can use, you know, debits. You can use so many different things, virtual cards. So there would be no address or name or anything attached to those anyway. I know that they were saying that they were verifying Apple ID and email, but there are so many reports of people using Google Voice and junk emails. And one guy even put in his billing address as Twitter's corporate address and you know, nothing happened. If they didn't have that infrastructure already, I mean, I'm not going to say one way or another, but if that infrastructure was not attached to this product, which it wasn't for verification purposes, then it wasn't happening. And this was so rushed. This was rushed in less than a week. They were trying to adapt the code from one product to another. And so a lot of things broke and didn't work. 
It was also said that this was a way for revenue, but $8 times whatever it was, I think people were saying it wasn't going to make that much. So there are several other ideas that I would have had for it to monetize. And I do agree, it's not a good thing to only be tied to advertisers. And that's main way that Twitter has made money for the last 12 years. But there's so many reasons why that's not the best thing ever. But it can't happen this quickly and it needs to be thought out a lot more. And there needs to be some experts and maybe a couple of adults in the room as well making these decisions or maybe testing them out or just saying, hey, would this work? I do happen to know that many people who knew better tried to counsel the decision maker on this, but it didn't happen. So big surprise, the next day there was a flood of fake accounts with blue check marks. So they were impersonating public figures and, and brands because they paid $7.99 for a blue check mark, probably on other credit cards. They were impersonating politicians, you know, so some of the things that happen, you know, I'm sure that if you watch Colbert or anything like that, you've already known about these, but one person impersonated Nintendo and had the blue check mark and had a photoshopped picture of Mario from Super Mario Brothers flipping off Twitter, basically. And that's not exactly consistent with their brand. You know, there were politicians joking about war. A pharmaceutical company announced that insulin was now free. These are all obviously fake accounts, right? They're impersonating them. There wasn't actually a pharmaceutical company saying that. We know this. Many posted links to malware and scam sites pretending to be famous people, whether they were YouTube influencers or any other social media influencer or celebrity of any kind. They could just make up any name. Elon was most upset that at all the people who changed their Twitter name to his or got the blue check mark and had his name. So they started announcing kind of some funny things as if he was saying it. So then he went on and ramped, tweeted and said, if you have a parody account, you need to have parody in the name. Well, this is an example of making up policies on the fly, especially if you're making up policies based on one person's ego or opinion. It's not going to work because, again, consistency breeds chaos. Always the case. You know this if you ever worked in a customer service department. If you guys all didn't say the same thing for the same case, then one person would get really, really mad if there was even just a little bit of hope that that could happen and go through the roof and then get escalated up all because there wasn't consistency. Same thing in policies with content moderation as well as not just content moderation but account safety and identity and all of that piece. I would have suggested that he did try to hire me as a consultant. Well, I would have said go rehire all of your trust and safety and fraud people back. So that probably wouldn't last very long. But it could have been possible with a little more time, but that just wasn't going to happen. Especially because so many fake accounts were done. I'm assuming there's probably going to be a lot of chargebacks, as well as a lot of TC40 reports. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to the episode about the visa fraud program versus the excessive chargeback monitoring program. I went way into so much detail about TC40 reports that I don't know. I was feeling like I was talking about TPS reports on office space. So I hope at least a few of you got that. So the chargebacks in TC phrase, I'm worried about them because there were so many fake accounts. I am sure that they were not all valid credit cards. I'm sure a lot of them were fraudulent credit cards stolen. Why would you pay your own $7.99 if you could pay someone else's? Especially with the scam links and just all that other stuff. They're not going to pay with their own payment method. So I am worried for their sake about the chargebacks that come in. I'm worried about the TC40 report because that's going to impact their future authorizations by banks. When banks don't feel like merchants are doing a good job, at fighting fraud and not sending them the junk. Basically, if they're 
feeling like merchants are not identifying fraudulent transactions before being sent to the bank. And if they're getting a lot of reports of fraud from their cardholders, they will just stop authorizing transactions on your website. And that's what I mean by impacting their decline rate. So now you are going to make even less money because banks don't trust you to say, yes, we're going to give you this, you know, $7.99 from this other customer because, well, you know, a bunch of our other customers said that their card was stolen. Also, because they suspended the program, if they don't refund all those $7.99, that's a whole bunch of chargebacks, not just in the fraud category, but services not rendered. If the recurring flag isn't turned off, then they're going to be charged next month. And then that's going to be, you know, recurring. I mean, just, oh my gosh, such a chargeback nightmare. And of course, I'm going to go down that road because, you know, I'm not just a fraud nerd. I'm a chargeback nerd too. But one of the reasons reasons why this chaos happened and why you know, it was because the product was rushed, right? I mean, I think I heard that they had to do it in like less than 24 hours and there was so much pressure. That could have been a rumor, but I know that it certainly wasn't more than two weeks. It couldn't go through the risk evaluation process because that team was laid off. So there was no risk assessment before that product deployed and went live. That led to a frenzy of attempted last minute defenses. And then there were major bugs post launch that prevented content moderation to happen. There was really little way for anyone to know if someone had a blue check mark because they paid for it or because they were legitimate and went through the verification process. And at some point, for some of them, you were able to click on it and see if it was paid for or not, but it was inconsistent all over. It was really buggy and messy and just really hard for people to decipher. And if you can't trust who anyone is, what's the point? So because of the rush product deployment, there was really no way for the system to distinguish between the legitimate or the legacy blue check works, right? The people that verified and the new ones. But also there was no ID verification. Payment method is never going to be enough to verify a human or especially verify an identity. If that were the case, there would be like 60 less identity verification companies out there whether it's identity document verification, or there is so much that can be done behind the scenes right now, especially in the US. There's some really awesome identity technology that's occurring, you know, allowing companies all over the world to work with each other in an anonymous way without any data actually ever leaving their network. But they get to know, does that person exist? And did they give everyone else the same information? It's pretty wild and crazy how much identity products there are out there. If you know what to look for, it doesn't even create any friction half the time. And then you only put friction, you only ask for driver's license or government ID from that 10% that you can't verify any other way. That's targeted friction. That's the way it should be. That's the way a lot of good companies are working towards. But when you don't do anything, when you rush a product deployment in like less than 24 hours, bad things are going to happen. That's another good lesson, right? Also, the people on the privacy and security teams that were still there, and this was on Sunday or Monday of last week, a lot of them left because they weren't listened to and they didn't want the blame and they were worried. And, you know, most of the time, the security people try to stay as long as they can. So, you know, it's difficult. I wanted to read something to you guys. I'm not going to credit, I'm not going to give the name out, but this was posted on LinkedIn the day after someone pretty high up on the trust and safety team at Twitter resigned. And I really liked what they said, and I think it's a good time to read it. So this person said, in my resignation email yesterday, I indicated a preference to work through mid-December, but two hours ago, my accesses were cut. This was always going to be a possibility given the circumstances, so no hard feelings, although I'm already sorely missing my colleagues. 
Early on in this game, we heard that it wouldn't make sense to buy our company if we were headed into World War III. Back then, it struck me as odd. Wouldn't Twitter of all platforms be the one to maintain relevance and strife? If World War III did happen, couldn't we somehow, through money and hard work and a fuck ton of luck, become the go-to for the knowledge necessary for strategy, the safety necessary for hope, the interaction necessary for peace? But there's a reason why I've spent five and a half years in trust and safety. I have no instinct for fortune, an endless tendency towards heartbreak. Whew, I felt that one in my heart the second I read it the first time. The romantic idiot that I am, it took till yesterday for me to accept that the product is no longer the one I've come to love. I'll be taking some time to process my thoughts and reach out to the people that matter most. But for now, I do want to say that I never thought I'd work in this field. And therefore, every moment I could spend in this space with some of the best and the kindness was a privilege and an honor. There were so many amazing posts on LinkedIn from people on Twitter last week. Like it was hard not to get sucked into just my empathy, but you know, not the drama, but just the, the human aspect of all of this. I mean, even to some of the people who depend on Twitter for their livelihood or depend on it for the news or to keep up with friends or, you know, have a community. I mean, that's important. But the people who worked there, especially in trust and safety and fraud prevention and payments as well, have poured their heart and soul into this organization. And to see it pretty much dissolve in two weeks see all of their hard work that they've worked really like say they've missed family gatherings. They've done so much for this. I know a lot of what's gone into the safety team and all the work they've done over the last several years and having to keep up with new technology and new bandwidth on the other side of the fence and geopolitical issues and everything else. So it's been a lot and to see it just gone has to be painful. Okay, so lastly, another big loss for them that I thought was really important to highlight, because I do think that these are things that we can all learn from and actually communicate some of them to your leadership. And I'll explain that more in just a few minutes. So they also lost over $900 million, which is 20% of their annual revenue on what they call new fronts. And I heard about this again on Pivot, but then read an article about it as well. But basically, it's a call with advertisers. And just like with television networks where they have the upfronts where advertisers can come and see new TV shows and kind of find out what the projected number of eyeballs are going to be for those shows. And then they go ahead and buy it in advance so that they can claim the best spots. This happens especially at the Super Bowl, but or on the Super Bowl ads, but just all together. The new fronts are kind of like that, but for social media. So Twitter had, you know, a lot of times these advertisers will commit to, you know, millions of dollars for the next year for 2023. And it's a good way for them to gain 20% of their annual revenue in like one day. But when they were on the call with advertisers, there was one of the heads of trust and safety on the call, as he should have been. And an advertiser asked him, you know, what was going to happen with content moderation? Advertisers were nervous. If content moderation isn't happening, if there aren't policies in place, if there aren't people who care and are going to make sure that they're weeding out the worst of the worst that can start World War III or that can do so many things, child exploitation, I mean, the list goes on and on. They didn't want to invest their money ahead of time. And the head of content moderation told the truth and said, I, I don't know. I really don't know what's going to happen with content moderation. And in that moment, all of that money was not bid on. So basically all those advertisers said, we don't feel comfortable giving you this money in advance. 
And so while Elon continues to talk about wanting to get more revenue and more revenue, he's also losing current revenue as well. And it just can't be understated or it just can't be overstated enough to say that trust is at the center of every online company, but especially when there's real-time user-generated content. There are so many unsung heroes on every website that has real-time user-generated content. Not even social media, dating apps, gaming, online gaming chat. You've got marketplaces that you know allow people to sell their old shoes or clothes. Those also need content moderation. You guys might be surprised at the things that people try to post anywhere that they can, whether it's just for fun or it's for political reasons or because they're thick. I don't know any other way to say it, but I should dial this podcast an ode to content moderation, but I just I can't say it enough how important it is. Well, not surprisingly, this episode is already longer than usually my solo episodes are, but I hope you guys are all staying with me because now I'm going to run through some top lessons. The first one is something that I've been saying for a long time. I borrowed it or maybe stole it from Kevin Lee. Kevin actually knows content moderation very well. He was the former head of spam operations at Facebook prior to mid-November 2016. He was on the online broadcast talking a little bit about that a couple of years ago. He also was one of the three founding members of the Risk team at Square. That's when I got to meet them and, and work with them then. And then he was also at Google AdWords when they first started as well. And now he is at Sift Technologies. And when Kevin was on that podcast episode talking about his time at Facebook and other parts of his career that were pretty pivotal as well, he shared something. It was a quote that his track coach said to him in high school. And I was like, why is this not on every single banner of your company? But And that is, trust is earned in drops, but it's lost in buckets. It's so profound and I'm always in awe of short phrases that say a lot because I usually find myself doing the opposite. Again, I'm going to say it again for the people in the back. Trust is earned in drops, but it's lost in buckets. And platforms with real-time user-generated content, moderation has to happen. I've said this before, say it one more time, like it's, it's much more difficult to manage than building a rocket or making electric vehicles or just being the CEO, basically, right? Like, I mean, CEOs are important. Leadership is important. However, there are a lot of CEOs that don't know a lot about the business, but they know how to hire the right people and they know how to delegate and they know how to be the face. I've worked for one of those CEOs in the past. I'm sure some of you guys have too. So I certainly wouldn't expect him to go build a rocket on his own. But I've been saying this since April. You can go back and check the tapes. It is a heck of a lot harder to be on e-commerce when you're accepting payments or when if you have any kind of user-generated content at all, any other business that isn't online. In my opinion, I could be wrong, but just from a strategy perspective, from a, you know, know it really important to get all the right people. It's different. I shouldn't say it's harder, but it's very, very different. The only reason why I shouldn't say it's harder is because I have no idea how hard it is to build a rocket. I'm sure it's hard. Definitely not a rocket scientist. I'm just a fraud fighter. Even though any system can be improved, it's become really clear in the last two weeks that there was a lot of garbage and chaos that was kept off that platform for a really long time. And, you know, say what you will about how it was before, but I think everyone can say that it could have been a heck of a lot worse. Other lessons, an authorized payment or even an email address or an Apple ID that can be faked doesn't mean somebody's ID is verified. Not even close. There are providers who offer these services and products. They're not foolproof, but they will make it much harder to spoof identity. That would have been the way 
I would have suggested that he done it. There's even a couple that you can add fairly quickly on the back end. You can even, you know, API it out or whatever. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can do things now with technology. It wouldn't have been hard, but I certainly would have never relied on those things to identify identity. You can fake them all day long. We all know that. And we've, some of us have known that for 20 years. Anyone in trust and safety or fraud and identity can point to this debacle as an example of the importance of their work. If you know your users or your customers or your advertisers don't trust your service, they'll leave and they won't return. Again, trust is earned in drops, but lost in buckets. Those are the kinds of things that you can share with your leadership. I do think that we are at a real tipping point right now in online commerce, as well as online interactions and all platforms where consumers are really starting to realize that it's up to them and they need to really trust who they store their money with and who they give their credit card information to and what passwords they put in and all of those pieces. Because, I don't know, it just seems like consumers have been acting like there's a mayor of the internet that, you know, is going to take down a website if it isn't true or if a company doesn't do what they say or give you your money back or doesn't keep your account information safe, that something's going to happen to them. And I think that between crypto and everything that's happened on Twitter in the last two weeks with, you know, being able to see how easy it is to spoof identities and you know, replicate people and just all those things online, as well as all the ATOs that have happened over the years. All of these things are just coming together to converge into, you know, drained crypto accounts, bank accounts, P2P money transfer scams and schemes. All of these things and consumers are going to start voting with their dollars. They're realizing that they can't trust every company and there isn't an entity that is going to step in and fix it. Now, that could be a whole other podcast episode on how that could even happen. But I mean, even government regulations in Europe and other areas, there's not one entity that's going to monitor the Internet, nor would anyone really want that. Because, again, I mean, it's, it is arbitrary, but as fair as fair can be. But that's why it's so important for consumers to do their due diligence, to have different passwords, to, you know, all the things we've talked about before. But it's also an opportunity for the companies that are doing the right things to say that they're doing the right thing. You know, use the opportunity to point it out to your leadership as well as maybe to your customers when you can. The reasons why Twitter is falling apart, right? Take the opportunity to share with your marketing team, maybe even in a joke, right? Like, see, look, see what happens when people like me aren't around. But I do hope that we start to see more companies saying, hey, and more communications teams allowing, let's be honest, more communications teams allowing fraud and trust and safety teams to communicate with their consumers, to provide, you know, FAQs and blog posts about how to stay safe on their platform, to make fun social media videos about staying safe on their platform, to be able to say the F word every once in a while, which is obviously fraud, to be able to you know, talk about it at a conference with their peers or, I don't know, be interviewed on a podcast. Many are totally cool with it and I'm grateful for that, but there are several that can't and I really wish everyone could hear from them and I wish that they could have a chance to have people realize like how intelligent they are. So that's my own selfish input, but there are studies and there are case studies I've shared in the past about companies who have done pilots and A-B tests of we're going to do all the verification and all of the account security stuff behind the scenes like we always have versus we're going to explain to our customer why we're asking them for this. We're going to explain to our customer why MFA is important to sign up for and what we will never do. We're going to explain, you know, all these pieces as they go along. And that merchant saw 10 times more sales in the group that they they you know, tested and gave all that education to than they did in the group where they just did everything behind the scenes and didn't tell them the why. I think that's critical. I think that's something that at least could be tested on your platform. 
that was a large marketplace that did that. And they really found that, wow, our customers want to be explained to. They want to be treated like adults and treated like their safety and security is something that they can control. Another thing, and I shared this on last Thursday's podcast because it made sense for that topic, but I'm going to share it again. 79% of consumers in TransUnion's latest consumer poll said that they were more likely to shop with an online company or shop online on a website with added security. I also said on that podcast episode that when I shared that with one retailer, she was like, I really want to meet those consumers and see if they actually do that. But I mean, it still should be targeted friction, right? Like it shouldn't be to everyone. It should just be that 5%, 10% that can't be verified behind the scenes. And if you don't know more about targeted friction, go back and listen to the episode with Mike Lewis, who is the head of engineering and machine learning for Risk at Square, as well as Sean Kulpitz, who is at Just Eat Takeaway. Did a great job on ATOs for a panel that I moderated that we put on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And Mike did a really good job explaining how they use targeted friction at Square for ATOs. And I thought it was brilliant. So I'll just point you in that direction. And just, you know, consumers saying, hey, if I see more security added to my shopping experience, I'm going to want to shop there more. I know that we can still be a little bit like, okay, you'll say that now in a survey, but is that actually going to happen? But I mentioned this on the other episode too. I recently was making a purchase on an app and I was asked to re-enter my full card number and it said exactly why. It was like, if you do this, this, and this, we're going to ask you for your full card number so we can verify that this is your account. We don't want anyone else to have access to your account or make purchases on your card. I don't think that I'm the only one who saw that and was like, wow, that's really cool. That's the kind of thing I think they're talking about, not just throwing MFA up there and expecting them to know how to do it. So, you know, I hope to have a former trust and safety leader from Twitter on Fartology soon. Those conversations are in the works, not for salacious details or to bring up any trauma, but to just share lessons learned from their career and how they kept Twitter functional and trusted for the decade and a couple years that it was around. So I know that was a lot, but I wanted to cram a lot in there. I've had a lot of thoughts on this and I've tried to, you know, I don't know, like I said, there's so many other thoughts out there, but I do think that some of the context around why this blue check mark idea didn't work and why all of this is happening and, and you know, why why all of a sudden there's more heat speech on this platform, like almost overnight. Well, when you disable content moderation technology, that's kind of what happens when you disassemble the teams in trust and safety product and the teams that really have worked so hard to put make this company safe. That's what's going to happen. I do hope that there are a lot of lessons for you guys, whether you are in this exact space online or not. There are, you know, even if you have reviews on your website, right, that's still real-time user-generated content unless you go through a filter process and then people can question the validity of the reviews. <sighs> it's always something, right? But there's a reason why we love this industry. There's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons why we wonder why we love it. But I think that one of them is that we really are on the cutting edge. I mean, there's so many things that I've had a front row seat on in the last 12 years within technology and trust and safety and fraud that may never make a headline, but that are crazy cool that I've been able to see or be aware of or know of. And we can kind of know the cause and effect, right? We're always looking for cause and effect. That really is what policy is about, right? If we put this policy in, what's going to be the effect of that? The good, the bad, the ugly. So I'm going to stop it there, but I really appreciate you listening up to this point. I hope that this was interesting to you. Please give me feedback, especially if it's constructive and I can improve and make sure that you tune in on Thursday because Stephen Sargent and I are going to dive into this FTX stuff and it's going to be 
a lot. Whether you understand crypto or not, it's going to be a fascinating story of fraud and scandal and no governance within a company, I think. So we will dive into that then. But with that, I look forward to talking with you soon. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.